Maintaining grasslands in the prairies is pretty important for a number of different reasons. Grasslands help us with water infiltration in soil, act as carbon sinks, provide critical habitat for grassland species, and critical forage for cattle, and depending on which indigenous culture you come from, grasslands have provided important foods and medicines for thousands of years. Cattle, bison, and other grazing animals are great maintenance tools when it comes to grasslands. But if you have too many, you may overgraze. If you have too few, you might not be in the ranching business for very long. I'm Derek Leahy, and in this episode of Rural Roots to Climate Solutions, we're talking to Mike Bruisedhead about ranching at Kainai First Nation. and welcome to the second installment of Rural Roots to Climate Solutions Siksikate Satipi or Blackfoot Agriculture Project Series, where we look at the on-farm or on-ranch climate solutions that are good for the land and agriculture operations and, and this is the important part, are agricultural climate solutions that fit in with, maintain, and support Blackfoot culture. In our first episode of the series, our podcast host, Lance Tailfeathers of Blood Tribe, or Kainai First Nation, spoke with Cyrus and Roy Weaselfat, also from Kainai First Nation, about farming on the Blood Reserve. In this episode, Lance speaks with Mike Brucehead, who has been ranching at Kainai for decades. Mike goes into some of the challenges of ranching on the reserve, and he also provides some solutions. Mike is also nice enough to give us a Blackfoot language lesson in this episode, too. He talks about the ini, or bison, about halfway through the episode. Mike also mentions the Buffalo Treaty of 2014, which I just happen to have in front of me right now, and I'd like to read out the purpose and the objective of the treaty. To honor, recognize, and revitalize the time immemorial relationship we have with Buffalo. It is the collective intention of we, the undersigned nations, to welcome Buffalo to once again live among us as creator intended by doing everything within our means so we and Buffalo will once again live together to nurture each other culturally and spiritually. It is our collective intention to recognize Buffalo as a wild, free-ranging animal and as an important part of the ecological system, to provide a safe space and environment across our historic homelands on both sides of the United States and Canadian border, so together we can have our brother, the buffalo, lead us in nurturing our land, plants, and other animals to once again realize the buffalo ways for future generations. All four First Nations of the Blackfoot Confederacy, so Siksika, Pikani, Kainai, and Amskapi Pikani, have been signatories to the Buffalo Treaty since day one. Other First Nations have signed since then. Right now, there are about 31 signatories to the treaty. Another entity that Mike mentions in this episode that may warrant further explanation is an organization called KIPA which stands for Kainai Ecosystems Protection Association. 
a very cool organization based in Kainai, focused on enabling environmental leadership on the reserve. In the pre-COVID days, Kipa used to organize an annual summit for people on and off reserve to attend. We're all keeping our fingers crossed the Kipa Summit makes a comeback this year because it's just a really great way to learn and connect with people. I had a blast when I went to the Kipa Summit in 2019. And lastly, just before I hand things over to Lance and Mike, our Siksikate Satipi Agriculture Project is actually more than the podcast series you're listening to right now. The project is also trying to build connections between nation members who are practicing good agricultural practices or good land stewardship practices on Kainai, Bikani, and Siksika, so they can share those best practices, lessons learned, traditional knowledge, and stories with each other. We're hoping to pull together at least one in-person event for these folks before the end of May, so keep your eyes on the Rural Roots to Climate Solutions website for more details. Bruce Ted with us. Mike is from the um, Kainai First Nation, but I'll just go ahead and let uh, Mike, if you can introduce yourself, uh, where you live and uh, what you do. Okay. Uh, Chief Bird, my Blackwood name. I'm uh, from the Fish Eater Clan, Mamuyiks, and uh, I'm a descendant of, uh, direct descendant of Chief Red Crow on my mother's side, and direct descendant of Holy Bear Woman on my father's side. Uh, Holy Bear Woman was one of the survivors of the Baker Massacre in uh, January. 23rd, 1870, along the Marias or Bear River. So just a quick history. And uh, what do I do now? Um, I'm just completing my doctoral studies. I teach a master's in education for University of Calgary. I'm partially still co-chair of Kainai Ecosystem Protection Agency. I sit on the Old Man Watershed Council and I'm a board member of the Waterton Biosphere uh, Reserve. Also, um, internationally, I belong to the uh, Continental uh, Environment Group uh, uh, based out of uh, University of Montana. And so that's just a bit I do. Um, I, uh, I ranch, I cattle ranch, and I used to train horses. And I used to uh, work in uh, um, the agricultural side uh, in producing uh, feed for cattle. Okay, uh, what is your personal connection to agriculture? And that's part of our feature today with uh, Rural Roots is to uh, highlight uh, agricultural producers in regard to what they would say climate change, but regenerative agriculture. Well, uh, I should mention I'm... Sort of a fourth generation uh, rancher, horse breeder, owner, and uh, also into uh, gardening. Um, my great grandparents uh, did that, my grandparents and my parents, and we did that. 
And so that's what connects me to agriculture. And presently I run uh, some cattle where I live. And uh, you get to um, kind of, uh, um, you get to know the business of, of, of cattle industry as a cattle producer. But prior to owning uh, uh, cattle, I used to work for the band ranch many years ago. And when the uh, ranch produced their own alfalfa um, Timothy mixed hay before uh, these large uh, operations started, such as uh, the BTAP or the forge plant on the reserve, they were non-existent back then. So I know how to uh, seed alfalfa mix. I know the old uh, uh, land uh, dry irrigate, uh, dry uh, farming. I know how to mow and bale and stack the early uh, small bales. And uh, things have changed in the last 30, 40 years. So I worked in the alfalfa field so as, as a young teenager. And so, but right now it's just predominantly cattle ranching. What got you started in having your own cattle operation and uh, how long it's been going and just how you started? Well, I looked at, uh, I, I, uh, I had, I've always been around horses and I wanted to expand uh, running cattle and uh, just uh, also having worked at uh, Blood Band Ranch when it had about maybe three to 4,000 head of cattle. And so I, I kind of had an idea what, that is all entailed in having cattle. It's, it's a lot of work, but uh, I always felt, well, no, I'll continue the great-grandfather's uh, uh, footsteps of owning my own cattle. So I've always ran Black Angus, and I've do, been doing that well, um, around 35 years. I don't have a big operation uh, enough to you know, as almost a serious hobby rancher. And I'll explain why I can't really fully live off ranching. There's different challenges. So uh, I always wanted to, being from a a ranching horse, rodeo family, uh, ancestors, uh, that's what got me into cattle because I was around cattle pretty much all my life. Any successes that you would like to highlight as far as your agricultural or your cattle operation? Well, the one of the successes is that I, uh, teaching my children and my grandsons now, the I guess the total aspects of cattle ranching. So there, there is uh, I guess when you call it down um, agricultural or, or uh, cattle ranching success from that angle where I'm able to uh, teach them on hands and, and, and rather than just theoretically. Um, so people know that I, I really uh, take care of my cattle, good feeding, watering, etc. What all needs to have a good uh, herd. And uh, so I'm recognized with uh, off-reserve ranchers and, and the few of us on the blood reserve that uh, cattle ranch um, I like to think if I had a bigger herd, I'd be really successful. But with the herd I have, uh, I think I'm doing okay, even though it uh, doesn't make me a lot of money. At least uh, I show a little bit on the profit margin side.
for your expertise and your experience, not only in the educational field, but also that with the Blackfoot traditional knowledge. Um, and I know that you're quite, uh, you participated quite a bit with the return of the bison just recently to the Blood Reserve. Also, if you can just share some of your background as far as the Blackfoot ways of knowing now, does it apply to agriculture today or what sort of, what, what lens do we have these days as far as perspective? If I can go back to uh, 2014, there was a, uh, a knee or, or a, a buffalo treaty signed in Amskabi Bikani, the Blackfeet Reserve in Browning. And there was an a invitation to other tribes that had buffalo or wanted to get into bringing the buffalo back. So the buffalo I always looked at um, when it came back to the blood reserve and a group of us worked on it from Kipa, other people, and we brought uh, the buffalo back, uh, 45 of them from Elk Island. There were young uh, yearlings, I think there was uh, 25 uh, females and 17 males. Anyways, uh, we brought these young ones so that way they would get used to the uh, the human element rather than being totally wild. And it has worked. Uh, in fact, uh, the people that feed them work with them. They're like pets now. You could touch them instead of uh, running away. And so to to bring back that thought, you know, our societies, which I was a member of uh, in the 80s and transferred my sacred society bundle in the horn society the uh, buffalo played an extremely uh, important role and not just with the horn society but the other societies buffalo women brave dogs kakwiks and even some of the bundle owners and uh, um, so it kind of really matched up uh, imagine 160 years uh, you know generally speaking was the last time the buffalo roamed what is now called the north part of Blood Reserve, but prior to that being a reserve, the last time it uh, the buffalo roamed these these prairies here in southern Alberta, and so the 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 spirit of the buffalo you see that on teepees, it's incorporated in our sacred songs, in our sacred dances when the horns dance out, you know the whole. Original stories from Napi and creation stories of how the buffalo was given to us to live off. And we really did, before uh, colonialism, fur traders, European contact, the buffalo was our main source of diet. And it was a very healthy diet. Um, but when they were almost totally eradicated for political purposes, um, and I'm glad. It wasn't the buffalo wasn't totally wiped out. The buffalo um, provided those uh, a very uh, healthy diet, and we don't have the uh, viruses or <clears throat> sicknesses that we have today. We didn't have them back then, and that was prior to eighteen seventy seven before the treaty. We could go all the way back and all the uh, uh, buffalo jump stories, biscuits. Um, uh, the old way of uh, uh, before metal came, the guns and knives, and how we hunted the buffalo. And so I, I, I'm directly saying, and I think I can prove it, 
We've been here for the, the minimum eight to ten thousand years ago, and uh, uh, a lot of our well, many of the uh, First Nations people, including us, we don't believe in the Beringia theory. So we've been here for a long time, and our mainstay of the cultural uh, 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 way of living was the uh, um, cultural keystone uh, species. And the story goes, we were given the right order direction from Napi and other spiritual stories that we live off the horn and split hoof uh, animals and not the rodents and other beings. So the buffalo is right at the top of the cultural uh, keystone species and, and scientists have their own western keystone species list. So the, the buffalo... Uh, bringing it back, I think the younger generation can now connect with what we talk about. The elders talk about the ceremonies, the old stories, how important the buffalo is. And I think that's going to uh, help the young people uh, retain their language, their culture, the ceremonies, the songs, and on and on. But especially the language. I think the the buffalo's presence is going to um, change how we think and and the metaphysics of the the spirit uh, transfer of the buffalo, the strength the, of the buffalo, all that, and that's another whole story. Um, but uh, I'm glad we brought the buffalo back, and I'm was involved in the uh, pipe ceremony along with uh, some elders. Uh, when we prayed on the upon the arrival of the buffalo. So I, I go visit them every now and then. They're not far from where I live. Um, so part of Rural Roots to Climate Solutions' purpose is uh, not only highlighting what ranching looks like within the Blackfoot Confederacy, but to make aware what ag producers are doing regarding regenerative agricultural practices, um, have you addressed this or raised concern regarding impacts of good versus poor ranching practices? Well, yes, I have. I've tried to uh, sustain my grasslands. I, I, I uh, ran 200 head at one time. And I'm in the class four uh, soil and grasslands in the north part of the flood reserve. And we have uh, sort of a sandy loom soil, and uh, which uh, why we have cactus. You're not going to find cactus on the rest of the flood reserve except in the north end. So the fescue grass is very sparse there. And uh, I had to cut back uh, because uh, I was already overgrazing by middle of July. I had to sell out and started feeding uh, in early August. And so that, by then I, start, I just started culling my herd. No, this is not going to work. I wish the tribe had uh, uh, more um, a program where we could... Uh, graze on grasslands on the reserve. But mind you, where I live, and I, I think the, the uh, um, ratio, I think 85 or 89% of the blood reserve is cultivated. Mm. And I'm adjacent to uh, 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 
farming all the way around me and, and, and some huge operations. And what I've noticed is the growth from uh, weeds and the fallout onto my grasslands that uh, take the moisture away from my grass and the weeds get all the moisture. Now, the last few years of climate change, drought. So imagine I don't have enough grassland to begin with to have a, a gigantic herd where I could just retire and live off my cattle. I can't do that. And that being compounded the last three, four years, <clears throat> a very short rainfall and uh, the, the snowfall. And I've noticed that that has really taken a, a, a lot of the growth uh, of the uh, the the grass that I have on this class four sandy loom soil, I also uh, uh, and I've seen this before. I, I start seeing the prairie little ponds that are scared uh, 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 scattered across uh, my my pasture uh, and off to the other fence lines. Those ponds you don't see anymore, and so. My brother, we've had just a a very simple uh, mechanism, uh, get water out of the river to fill our our little ponds. This year, my dugout went dry in uh, July, first time ever in 35 years. And so something is happening with the environment and the winds and, uh, and hopefully right now the frost line stays in the ground. Because if it seeps through and uh, dries up, then we're going to have another dust bowl, you know. Uh, Not like the 1930s, but, you know, Mm -hmm. I'm saying that where the grass isn't going to grow. This past summer, my my dugout dried up. I started feeding end of July. I've never done that. Usually the earliest I've done that was um, in September. But hopefully... This year, hopefully, I'm not going to feed uh, year-round. So the impact there is, is either we feed, uh, get a, purchase the feed off the reserve, and the prices are high because they're also being impacted by drought off the reserve. People that grow feed, then in their own reserve system, the uh, forage plant, they're running short on feed. Because they purchase feed off the reserve, and it has to be of certain very clean specifications. If the off-reserve are short on feed, then their distribution to whatever contracts they need to fill is is cutting down on the amount of uh, the, the feed that they have for sale. So it's impacting. Feed is extremely important and you go back and you think about climate change and drought, that's what's being impacted. A, um, another um, aspect I want to um, share some of your thoughts on are with today's climate change in regard to meth- methane emissions or uh, nitrous oxide, or just the general um, the gas um, greenhouse gas reductions, if it applies to um, agriculture, again, soil carbon 
sequestration, that kind of stuff. Have you have any thoughts on that as far as part of today versus what you're up against? Well, having just a small operation, I, I think uh, the science on uh, methane uh, emissions from agriculture, they're very limited uh, on the blood reserve. But you go across the reserve boundaries of the the big operations, and that's their survival. But uh, the the cattle industry there, and and again, it's a a teeter-totter situation where the cattle and livestock uh, producers in uh, the, the... you know, the operations off the reserve where methane gas may be, you know, uh, going into the air and and, and that's compounding uh, the uh, uh, climate change effect. The, 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 the province and agricultural people have to study that, have to take their data and, and see, okay, how can we cut down on the emissions? And with the the uh, uh, nitrous oxide uh, uh, emissions, same thing. I don't know if we're there with all the uh, uh, 85 to 89% uh, cultivated lands. Uh, and I know there was there was a policy from the tribe for farmers to to cut down on on you know those. Uh, uh, I guess emission products, and and again, I don't know if they're being followed up, but uh, that's where I think uh, uh, as a tribe we're sort not me, but I think there's some guilt there, some responsibility there when you have that amount of farmland and that has that grows from all the different barley, rye, you know, wheat. Um, in all the other other products that they they grow, you take the the uh, seeding starting in September, and the cultivating, and then with all the sprays, pesticides, insecticides, fertilizers, and then through the summer the uh, the spraying of the crops, and in the fall time, the whole uh, harvest thing. I've seen some valleys where there's like a cloud, and I don't know if that's from the dust or the emissions of the machinery, but imagine the west winds, the people that are living downwind from those dusts or emissions, that's what they're breathing in. And I think there needs to be an observation made if there any of uh, the agricultural practices are impeding uh, the health of of uh, blood reserve, which I'm from, uh, and I can't speak for the other tribes, but if we are uh, uh, being, uh, um, how would I put it, if we're contracting different illnesses from uh, uncontrolled farming practices, I don't know how much the farmers, uh, uh, and these are off-reserve uh, permits, Farmers, I don't know how much uh, they do in terms of uh, uh, protecting the soil, the people, because they come onto the reserve and then they leave. And, and I suspect with their own croplands, I think they're more careful of what they put in their own soil. But with us, it's almost like uh, 
And I got no proof of this, but I keep hearing it from land occupants that lease their land for others to farm, that the soil conditions aren't the best on the blood reserve because they've been farmed and overly farmed. But the income, we have no choice because some of these land occupants, that's their only land. Mm. And again, it's those kind of challenges stuck between a rock and a hard place. And I think the land occupants, the younger ones are starting to understand good farming and agricultural practices. But I think there needs to be a program uh, with the older people to understand the effects of farming, the good parts and the not so good. And so that way, they're not only being, uh, as somebody describes them, uh, armchair farmer. I'm not because I don't farm. But uh, that term came many years ago where somebody will, sits on their couch and somebody else farms their land. Two-thirds of that goes off to reserve all the proceeds, only one-third to the uh, land occupant. So I think uh, education through seminars needs to happen. And I think I understand there's six zones on the reserve. Well, this is where the land should be taking the lead <laughs> rather than putting all their efforts on, on uh, uh, confiscating cattle and horses. Jeez, there's other things you could have your time and to me that kind of indicates the, the limitation of their knowledge on good uh, grassland managed practices agricultural farming practices etc because like I say I live downwind from a big operation and I have diabetes and I have high blood pressure and I used to be a, I would consider without tuning my own horn pretty good athlete but now I got these things I wonder okay what am I breathing in and some mornings I have headaches you know so those are things I think where agriculture and health need to be uh, looked at rather than pointing fingers how do we resolve this but the thing is 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 finding out you know what are the 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 areas that were not informed informed if we don't know about them. And I think that's where uh, the hard questions have to be asked. Hmm. Okay, well, speaking of uh, young uh, people getting into this type of um, lifestyle or agriculture, whether it be farming, ranching, um, your advice, I think, would be to anybody wanting to have their own cattle operation. I guess some of the hurdles, uh, I know some of it might self is of the way the uh, the regs are through the Indian Act and of course the um I wouldn't say the politics but this the administrative uh the administrative process of each first nation so what would your words of encouragement be or advice i if anybody wants to go into cattle or even horse use the formulas out there how many cattle can you put on 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 a certain amount of square hectares and and but before you do that, do a soils test. What kind of soil do you have? So that way you'll know what kind of grass, what kind of fescue growth you're gonna have. Because the soil, the grasslands that uh, were excellent, were probably, I would say, around right in the central area of the Blood Reserve, St. Mary's Dam area, and a little bit to the south. 
where they had an abundant of grass. But the sad thing is, now they're all plowed. So the good grasslands um, are gone. And just the hilly side and where there's not a lot of grass, that's what's left for ranching. So it's ha- people who want, young people who want to go into ranching <clears throat> get to know the soil management and, and get to know the best, uh, best possible water solutions you're going to have. Are you going to have a dugout? If it dries up, what's your backup plan? And also there's stream going to look at the water table in your areas. So my thought on that, the rate we're going, I think the tribe needs to help and assist with a program to have central pivots for irrigating just regular grass. Doesn't have to be fancy. Or center pivots with a well where that well will be filling the dugouts. Because if you don't have the grass, you don't have the water, you're not going to be successful. And your cows are going to be sickly, skinny, no poundage, because it's all about poundage in the cattle industry and in the goats and sheep and whatever. It doesn't matter what kind of farm uh, animal you're going to raise. Those has to be. So we have to get into the, the agricultural and ranching science in cattle and horse industry. Because of climate change, I don't know if we're heading into feeding feed year-round, and that is very costly. The price of feed, you, you average out or you measure it, calculate it, how much you're going to need. If it's six months feeding, eight, ten, or even 12 months. Then you size up the, the cattle or whatever uh, animal you're going to be <clears throat> raising, how much is the the uh, the calf selling rates, heifers and and the steers, and it gives you that profit margin because that profit margin is what if if you're lucky you get pocket all that, but what if your whole profit margin is going back in just to buy more feed? all year round, then you're not making any money. And I keep thinking, okay, we talk about subsidies. The province has subsidies, but we don't have anything. So I would like to have the cattle uh, history continuing my family and other people but I would have to be very honest with my grandsons and my sons. This is what you're going to go through. So now them working for me or helping me out, they have an idea, you know. Gee, we're feeding, you know, one sometimes once a day, sometimes twice a day. So right now there's no snow. And if this no snow keeps going into April, then that's drought time again. And so you almost get to be a, a, a weather forecaster looking at it right now because what's happening now is going to affect three, four months from now. And I kind of thought like that, but when it actually happens, it really makes you think. you got to look to the future of every drop of water. Is that going to be there come April, May or whatever? 
And so it's very challenging. And some people throw up their hands before they start because there's just too much. And there needs to be collaborative uh, efforts from tribal sources, hopefully province and federal sources, to help the Indian cattle rancher. It's it's pretty tough. Okay, that's our time for this uh, this uh, podcast. So I'd like to thank Mike for joining us and sharing your expertise, not only with cattle ranching, but also the the ENE project, being a Blackfoot knowledge keeper. Thank you. Thank you. Rural Roots to Climate Solutions is an Alberta-based initiative empowering agriculture producers and the communities they live in with climate solutions. Rural Roots runs workshops, farm field days, webinars, and the Regenerative Agriculture Lab. We produce a farmer's blog. We work with rural communities to help them develop their very own renewable energy projects. And of course, we do this podcast. For more information about us and what we do, go to the website, which is www.rr2cs.ca. Lance Tail Feathers was your host for this episode. He also did the editing. The podcast was produced by me, Derek Leahy. And the rest of the amazing and talented Rural Roots to Climate Solutions team is Marie Galanka and Shiana Younger. The podcast is funded by a variety of Alberta-based foundations. Lance's interview with Mike Brucehead and my parts of this episode were recorded on Treaty 7 lands and in Métis Region 3. Happy farming wherever you are in Alberta. And remember, what's good for the climate is good for the farm. Good for the farm.